Really, in part, why uh, you know why we've been reading through this? It gives you an excellent summary of the the what the Christian message is all about: who God is, who Christ is, what He's done for us. If somebody asks you, you know, what 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 does it mean that you're a Christian? That's that's been drilled into you because we've read it every week. That's just a simple thing that we can do to help uh, help with uh, discipleship, honestly. Uh, so, so good job. I understand it's, it's a little bit more pressure to do that when you're the one in front of the microphone and you have to <laughs> try to read it from memory and didn't mean to um, call any attention to our sound guy. You're doing a great job. It's, it's fine. It's perfectly fine. Well, sometime in the early fall of 2001, as a college student, I walked into a class called Introduction to Philosophy not quite knowing what to expect, and to tell you the truth, I'm not entirely sure what happened in that particular class. Uh, I was a bit surprised that the professor spent a good deal of his first lecture talking about the very uh, text that our sermon is about today, that that Bill just read for us. And I know many Christians might be excited to think, that is this going to be a story about a professor at a secular university makes a clear presentation of the gospel? But before you get excited, let me just say that this particular professor didn't really make a clear presentation of anything, Uh, not the gospel, not really philosophy either for that matter. It was mostly random stories from his personal life mixed in with these just bizarre, inscrutable ramblings about uh, who knows what. He would say things in this just intense voice as, as if we were supposed to you know, this is something deeply profound, say things like, is, 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 and take care of yourself. It was just weird. And, you know, the funny thing is that at the start of every class, he would demand that we tell him where he left off last time and become irate that we couldn't answer. You know, why do I have to remember? Well, because you're the only one who might possibly understand whatever it was you were talking about. Last time, I know all I remember is that you were complaining about your neighbor's dog defiling your lawn, but since that makes it into every lecture, it doesn't help us much. We could be anywhere. It, I mean, I, I, did, I did enjoy the class, I should say that. I got an A, and I did enjoy it. It was a bit like visiting your great-grandma in the home, you know. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't think you do either, but it's fun to listen to you kind of a thing. But he did on the first day of class, he, he talked about the story of these three men hanging on the cross 2,000 years ago. One thief was mocking the man on the middle of the cross while the other one piped up and said, you know, we're guilty, he's innocent, he's done nothing wrong, shut up. I do remember that was part of his paraphrase, was shut up, which was pretty good. I'm not sure why I'm telling you this story other than I, I can't get it out of my head when I hear this sermon text now, that class, and it's interesting to me, though, that he found this particular passage relevant to the subject of philosophy, not arguments for the existence of God or uh, grappling with the existence of evil, which are important philosophical discussions that we, of course, never covered in that class. Uh, I think, though, that he went to this passage because what really interested him in general was not logical arguments or discussion, but this kind of contemplation or even meditation on Uh, the meaning of life, what makes life good or beautiful or meaningful. Not sure what his answer to that question was, but that seemed to be the question. But I I think for him, these thieves represented two kinds of life, two ways to live, as the famous tract would say. 
One way of living acknowledges that we live our lives before God, our creator, in accountability to him, and acknowledges our need for him, the plight of our guilt before him, and pleads for his mercy and grace. The other way is to live this life of sort of unexamined denial of our creator's purposes, to shift the blame to others in self-righteousness, to insult both God and neighbor. So we see those two ways of living on either side of the cross, Quite a dramatic illustration here in these two criminals who are crucified alongside Jesus in Luke chapter 23. In a sense, we could almost boil down the entire gospel of Luke to this moment because Luke has been pushing this question on us. Who is Jesus and how will you respond to him? And what is your response to him? Tell us about about who you are. We've seen all manner of people reacting to Jesus. We've seen from the very beginning, right, shepherds and elderly prophets reacting to the infant Jesus. We've seen fishermen and tax collectors, lepers and the demon-possessed, a Roman centurion, a grieving widow, children and prostitutes, a rich young ruler and a blind beggar, Pharisees and Sadducees, chief priests and scribes and Pilate and Herod, So many colorful characters reacting to Jesus, interacting with him under vastly different circumstances. But at the end of the day, there are two ways that they all respond to Christ Jesus in these two radically different ways to live. Because in all of the whole human race, there are two kinds of people and only two. There are, as I've been saying, sinners who recognize that they are sinners in need of grace and sinners who are deluding themselves that they are righteous So we don't know either of these criminals' names. We don't know what crimes they committed. The crimes must have been serious because the second guy says that we've been justly condemned. It's hard to imagine anyone being on a cross and saying, what I did, I deserve this. Maybe the lack of detail is intentional so that we aren't tempted to see ourselves as better than they are because of the horribleness of their crimes. I think we're to see ourselves in them as they are. So if you're keeping notes, my plan is simply to discuss the first criminal's response, followed by the second criminal, and then we'll look at the answer Jesus has to give at the end. So we see the first criminal in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now the ESV and says he railed at him. Other translations might say insulted him. The Greek term behind this is really the word for blasphemy, and it can mean just slander and insults, but in the context of someone insulting Christ hanging on the cross, it's just hard for me to imagine that we're not supposed to look at this and think of that idea of blasphemy in the religious sense of insulting God. And I think the other criminal agrees with me as he rebukes him and says, do you not fear God, right? That's where he starts. And this guy went from hanging on the cross as a criminal to hanging with Jesus in paradise on the same day. So I'm going to go with his read on things here. He's figured something out. The first criminal's words are disrespectful to God. And he is also simply echoing the blasphemy that he's heard from the Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers before him, as we saw in last week's passage. If you have your your Bible, just look a few verses up up ahead of this. 
They were all taunting Jesus in similar terms. If he's the Christ of God, the chosen one, let him save himself. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. That was the taunt, right? And now this criminal's mocking voice calls out among the scoffers, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. And this also isn't the first time that Jesus has heard this kind of taunting. Do you remember who is the first one to attack Jesus with this kind of reasoning? If you are who you say you are, then do this to prove it. Luke chapter 4 in verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And then few verses down he took him to Jerusalem to the pinnacle of the temple and said to him if you are the son of God throw yourself down from here remember what Jesus said when they arrested him this is your hour and the power of darkness so they are speaking the serpent's words here right the venom of asps is under their lips so this is dark this first criminal it's not just following these other human enemies of Jesus, he's following the devil's lead in blaspheming the Son of God. It's dark, but it's also delusional because here he is. He's a, a criminal of the worst kind, bearing this dreadful penalty for his crimes. And there's no remorse, there's no regret, no facing his own situation, his own deeds, his own guilt. Instead, he hangs there railing against Jesus and therefore against God. He is at what might be the most, the, the lowest point imaginable in this life. He's been nailed up on a cross to slowly die in disgrace as entertainment for some and as a warning and example to others. But everyone around him is making fun of Jesus, and that gives him this opportunity to distract from his own situation, distract himself, maybe distract others. Everyone will be focused on ridiculing Jesus instead of him. Perhaps he thinks he's a smooth criminal here. It's a profound study of human nature. We see this play out in all manner of, of human interactions, from the playground to, to politics, what do you do when you're down? Well, if you can find someone who is down lower than you and start kicking them, you maybe make yourself feel a little bit better. You don't need to defend yourself or even own up to your crimes. Imagine that. But if you can just shift the shame, shift the blame onto someone else, maybe you can improve at least the, other, the way other people look at you, right? It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector all over again. Do you remember this from Luke Chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable. Pharisee, well-respected, beloved, righteous in everyone's eyes, Pharisee and a lowly, vile tax collector go up to pray. And how does the Pharisee pray? He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. It's the exact same attitude, isn't it? I'm tearing someone else down to build myself up. I'm trusting in my, my justification, my hope for justification is other people are worse than me. That's this guy's hope on the cross, right? Jesus is, is worse than me. Strange as it may sound, the Pharisee in Luke 18 and the criminal in Luke 23 are both examples of self-righteousness. The Pharisee is loved and respected by everyone, while this criminal is 
despised and shamed, but they're both trying to justify themselves by condemning someone else to build themselves up. Both trying to pass the test by finding someone lower to establish a curve that they think they can pass on, right? Both failing to face the reality of their situation before God. So you can be well-respected and loved like the Pharisee, or you can be condemned and despised like this criminal, and still be self-righteous either way. Thinking the righteousness of God is something that you can achieve on your own or evade, escape it by tearing somebody else down, thinking that you're okay before God as long as you can point to someone else who's worse than you. So in that way, self-righteousness is an insult to both God and man, right? And therefore, since it's an insult to both God and man, it's a violation of the two greatest commandments on which Jesus said the whole law and the prophets hang. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So that way does not offer any hope of justification. It is the ultimate transgression of the law. It offers no hope, only makes matters worse. So let's consider then uh, the case of the second criminal uh, we see beginning in verse 40. But first, just reflect on the fact that he is in the same exact situation as the first criminal, right? So far as we know, there's no difference in their crimes and in what they've done and any way that they've lived their lives up to that point. They are both condemned to death in the worst way the Romans could think of, both vile offenders in hopeless situations, which according to this guy, they justly deserve. And according to Scripture, we are no different fundamentally, right? That is our situation as well. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. No one is righteous. No, not one. So why does this one guy end up with Jesus in paradise? Because of his response to Jesus? Well, let's look at his response. The second criminal, well, he begins where all wisdom begins, right? With the fear of God. He begins with God. Do you not fear God, he says. Now, it's possible, it's in fact probable that he understands Jesus as God's representative, and so to insult Jesus is to insult God and therefore blasphemy. But he explicitly connects this with the idea of justice. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So in some way, his eyes are opened to his situation before God. He is in a terrifying earthly situation, is he not? He is literally in the process of being tortured to death, but it's the judgment of God that he truly fears. God is a just judge, and he is a condemned sinner. It's really not difficult to imagine that as he hangs there dying, he has some motivation to reflect on his life, the way he's lived his life, and consider that he's justly condemned and about to stand before his maker in that guilty state. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He recognizes the just judgment of God, recognizes that he is justly condemned by both human and divine justice, what people think of him and have done to him seems to be the least of his worries. He fears God. 
that's not the real turning point. That's really understanding the, the law, right? Which you could understand that much and find yourself in the same situation as, as Judas, really, right? Recognizing what he did. Instead of turning in repentance, he goes and hangs himself in, in despair. So the real turning point for this second man is found in his response to Jesus of Nazareth. And there are two main things that he recognizes in Christ, we can point out here. The first, obvious, he recognizes the innocence of Christ. He recognizes that Christ has done nothing wrong. And this is a point that we've seen before. Luke has been driving it home. We saw it in Christ's trial, ironically, right, where Jesus is condemned, but Pilate attempts to officially acquit Jesus several times during that trial. He keeps trying to bang his gavel and say not guilty, and of course the crowd just keeps shouting crucify him anyway. But Jesus did nothing wrong. This is one of the main points of last week's sermon, right? So I won't spend too much time on it, but it's also one of the main points of the gospel, so we're going to spend some time on it, right? Jesus was completely innocent. I've been saying there are two kinds of people, sinners who know they're sinners and sinners who think they're righteous, but at a more fundamental level, the two kinds of people in this world are Jesus and everyone else, right? Jesus is the only genuinely innocent human being who ever lived, the only human being who does perfectly measure up to God's standard of righteousness, and he was condemned and crucified and killed not for his own sins, but for our sins. He was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that's what Jesus came to do, to take our sins and our sorrows and make them his very own, as the hymn says. And because of that, they are no longer ours to bear. So that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus, as Paul put it, both perfect and unfailing judge who is able to justify the ungodly while judging justly, to declare that sinners like you and me are perfectly righteous because our sins have been judged and punished in the person of Christ who bore our sins in his own body on the tree, as the word of God says in 1 Peter. Now, it's doubtful whether the criminal can articulate all of this. He's never read Romans. It hadn't been written yet, but he recognizes Jesus as innocent, and he appeals to Jesus. He also recognizes that Jesus is the king. And in some ways, for me, this is the most stunning part of this whole discussion, because Jesus is on the cross and dying, and everyone around there is making fun of him. Right? His enemies think that they have put an end to Jesus. They are very proud of themselves. They're feeling good about themselves. They're, they're boasting and rejoicing. This guy is as good as dead. He ain't going to be king now. That's one less thing to worry about. But this one criminal who is about to die says, Jesus, remember me, not if, but when you come into your kingdom. He still believes that Jesus is going to come into the kingdom, to be the king that reigns. At a time when they hadn't heard about the resurrection of Christ, well, I, I don't know if he had. Jesus had mentioned it, but nobody really understood. And everybody else, even Jesus' own disciples, were still looking for an earthly kingdom to come immediately. Somehow this dying criminal believes in a kingdom, believes in a reign of Christ, 
that he can't possibly see right now and can't possibly imagine how it's going to come to be, yet he believes God. This is the kind of faith that the New Testament talks about Abraham having. The author of Hebrews says that Abraham was willing to obey God's call to offer up his son Isaac because he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, right? God had promised that through your son Isaac you'll become father of this great nation. He's commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac, and he's willing to follow through with it until God prevents him because, this is the author of Hebrews, the only conclusion you can draw, he considered that God is able to raise the dead. And Paul agrees, uh, describes Abraham's faith in a similar way in Romans chapter 4. Abraham didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body that was as good as dead, the barrenness of Sarah's wife. He believed God would still make him a father of many nations because the God he believed in is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist. So somehow, by the grace of God is how, this criminal knows that the cross won't stop God's kingdom. Death won't stop King Jesus. He has that kind of faith, the faith of Abraham. So he believes Jesus is innocent, righteous, king of kings, even as Christ is dying on the cross. I don't know how much he understands beyond that, but clearly it's enough, right? Based on that limited understanding, he simply appeals to Jesus to remember him in the kingdom. This has been a theme in Luke's gospel and a lot of the responses that I mentioned earlier. The folks who receive Jesus rightly are folks who have absolutely nothing to offer, who are aware that they have no other hope in the world. It's the rich young ruler who's got wealth and fame and power who goes away sad, but blind beggars receive their sight. A woman who has been ill for years simply reaches out and touches the hem of his garment in desperation and is healed. Desperate people who know that they've got nothing to offer, who come to Jesus with no plea, no bargaining, nothing to put on the table, no quid pro quo. They just know that they are poor and wretched, and Jesus is the king who has the power to save. And how does Jesus respond when people come to him in this way? What does he say to this thief? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Not only will you have a place in the kingdom, by the way, but you will be with me. Your place will be with me. So there's an account in some early Jewish traditions called rabbinic writings, writings of the rabbis, where this respected rabbi and this lowly potter who used to bring him a cup of water while he was studying the Bible, they have this conversation so that the potter asks the rabbi, you know, remember how we, we grew up together, we started learning the scriptures together, but I guess you were better in school, you were considered worthy to go on and become this great rabbi. Well, I ended up just this, this humble tradesman, this potter. Well, when we get to the kingdom, when we get to heaven, can you put in a good word for me so I can get a better spot in heaven, maybe even you know, be with in, in the place where you are in heaven like we, we were when we were growing up? And you put in a good word for me. And the rabbi says, no. What am I going to say? You'll end up where you deserve to be as a lowly potter. 
all the other lowly tradesmen. There's, you don't deserve to be in the same situation as me in heaven. It's, it's stupid for either of us to, to even think to ask for anything else. Compare that to what Jesus says here, right? You will be with me. He blows up that mindset entirely. Not only will a criminal who has been condemned to death for presumably the most heinous of crimes and at the last minute makes this plea, not only will he get into the kingdom, but he'll be with the king same-day service. This passage, I know, gets kicked around whenever we talk about the intermediate state, and maybe you've heard folks point out that you know, our ultimate hope isn't this disembodied heaven where we float around on clouds with harps singing kumbaya or whatever. Our ultimate hope is the resurrection of the body, the new heavens and the new earth where we'll have bodies, we'll eat meals, we'll do work just without futility or fatigue or, or boredom or sin or or sickness, and amen, that is definitely our, our final state that we confess and look forward to, I believe, in the resurrection of the body, right? But our ultimate hope, with or without a body, our ultimate hope is to be with Christ our Savior, to be in the presence of the one who loved us so much that he chose to die for us, even though we were rebellious and wretched and sinful one who welcomes us freely, washes us clean, dresses us up in his own perfect robes of righteousness and presents us before God without stain or blemish and does all of this for free because he wanted to, because God so loved the world. And our self-righteousness wants to creep back in at this point and say, I can't let you, I can't let you do all that, Jesus. I can't let you pay my the whole way for me. Let me let me chip in a little bit here of, of some good works or some devotions or, or something, some giving. But you don't have anything to give before the judgment seat of God, and he doesn't want you to give anything. He simply wants you to receive this as a gift that he offers for free. It's an insult to try to pay for it. This is his work because salvation belongs to the Lord. He gets the credit, he gets the glory, and you get the grace. As a closing thought, and this isn't original to me, the other thing I cannot help but think of when I think of this passage is the need to plagiarize Alistair Begg, right? Some of you know where, where I'm going. He preached a sermon uh, talking about this man on the middle cross. I'd like to talk to him one day to, figure out how did that work out when you arrived in paradise because he, he'd been an insurrectionist or something up to this point, equivalent of a terrorist up to this point. He hadn't lived this life of a great piety or religious devotion and he ends up in heaven and he's there and the angels are at the gate and they don't know what to do with him, right? You take him aside. Do you, do you understand the doctrine of justifications? No, I've never heard of it. Doesn't know any of this stuff. It, Certainly can't recite the Apostles' Creed or explain hypostatic union. He's got no clue. Why does he think he can stand there? What is the hope that any of us have? The man on the middle cross said, I could come. That is our hope. Desperate, desperate sinners knowing that we are in need of grace. We don't fully understand. I don't fully understand anything that I even just talked about. Maybe I'm like that philosophy professor how God can love us, 
how his grace and his mercy can redeem us as wretched sinners that we are, but he is a God who is full of mercy and grace. We simply cast ourselves upon the cross of Christ, cling to him, trust in his mercy. As he said, we could come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy, which is higher than the heavens. We thank you for your grace. We know that your word is true. We know that your law is good. And yet we, in various ways, have done the opposite, desired the opposite, rebelled against you. And yet we thank you that your word also tells us that God so loved the world, he gave his only son. What you saw in us, we can never imagine, but we do know that what you, what you see in us, by your grace through faith, is your own son, his perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, and that the love that you have Father, for your eternal Son is the foundation of our hope and our assurance of your love for us in Christ. Uh, forgive us, Father, each day we are tempted to turn back to the way of self-righteousness. Maybe some of us here are like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who think that we're winning who look at our accomplishments and pray, thank you, I'm not like others. Or maybe we are those who think that we are failing and we're trying to hide that fact from even ourselves by looking around and trying to find those who are even worse. Uh, forgive us and by your grace open our eyes as you open the eyes of the second thief to see the truth, to fear God, to turn to Christ, knowing that he is our only hope, our only plea, that all our righteousness is filthy rags, but knowing that he is a strong and perfect plea, and that we can stand before you knowing we are loved, we are forgiven, we are your beloved children, simply because you have bid us come to you. May this ever be our hope and may it shape the way that we live in this world as we wait for you, the way that we love and view others and the way that we prioritize speaking your truth and declaring this wonderful love of Christ, those who need to hear it rather than tearing them down to make ourselves look good, uh, recognizing that we are all fundamentally in that same place as those two crucified men. And our only hope is the words spoken by the man on that middle cross and the work that he has done for us in his death and resurrection. Uh, to him uh, be the glory. We ask these things in his name. Amen.